To make the human central above all other species has been one of our deepest um, thinking mistakes in, um, in the West. This is Rural Roots, and I'm Boyan Fierst. This week, my guest is Pam Hall, an artist, a scholar, and a bit of a self-described muckraker. Pam has a deep connection to rural places. She has enormous respect for the knowledge and experiences that rural people bring to every aspect of their daily lives. Her latest project is called Towards the Encyclopedia of Local Knowledge. It is a celebration of rural livelihoods and deep knowledge of land and sea that still resides in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. The ongoing project is a collection of beautifully illustrated pages Pam has built in collaboration with people of the Great Northern Peninsula and Fog Island and Change Islands. I'm happy to hand over the rest of this episode to Pam Hall. I am uh, Pam Hall. I am um, an artist and a scholar, a writer, a filmmaker. Um, I've lived in Newfoundland since 1973. I came here as a very young, uh, impressionable... Um, artist who was committed to making social change through education. I spent my first 10 years here doing public service, working for the Department of Education before I ever went back into the studio to make artwork or write children's books or any of that stuff. Um, so this place formed me, both politically and creatively. So my work comes from this place. It's not contained by this place. I've worked a lot around female labor. Um, I've worked in fish plants. Uh, I still make work that goes in galleries um, here and, and across North America. Um, but more and more I make work with other people that lives in other places, you know, in hockey rinks, you know, in libraries, in women's lunchrooms, in fish plants in Arnold's Cove. Um, Places where you wouldn't necessarily expect to find contemporary art. Um, so that's the work I do right now. I would call it, you know, social practice, or I would say that art is social labor. And as much as, you know, I get all the credit because I'm the artist, <laughs> um, I don't believe it's possible to make art alone any more than I believe it's possible to make knowledge alone. Um, we live in histories and in physical and cultural environments. And humans are not the only ones <laughs> who live in these environments. And we are connected to all of those human and more than human collaborators on the planet. So. I try and get some of them to help me make my work. Rennie Howell keeps animals and also hunts and traps them for fur and food. He began trapping when he was 10 years old and learned from his uncle how to follow wood paths where animals run and make snares and use traps. 
He now traps rabbits, beaver, foxes, muskrat, and otter, and sells his furs to a buyer in North Bay, Ontario. He learned to look carefully for signs of animals, tracks in snow or muddy ground, where they use the washroom, where they dig and burrow, and where beavers make their houses. The best time of year for trapping beaver is in winter when the weather gets real cold. Then they are in their houses, and you can put your traps in the water in holes through the ice. You can trap beaver until March and muskrat until May, but most fur animals have thicker and healthier pelts in the late fall and early winter. You wouldn't want to trap an otter in the spring because it rubs its furs and makes it patchy. Rennie has an old fox board from the early 1900s that he uses to stretch and dry his pelts. He has a flesher and scrapes the flesh off and all the fat and nails it onto a piece of plywood. He is just drying them, not tanning them, and it is careful work. If you dry a skin too fast, you can ruin it. Dry it out. He follows the published guidelines for what contemporary fur buyers want and has got as high as $240 for an otter pelt, $236 for fox, and $500 for lynx. His red fox pelts showed number one in Canada with Canadian fur buyers. Rennie eats rabbit and beaver and otter, but not fox or weasel. His wife Elsie prepares beaver much like beef, fries up salt, pork and onions, and then adds the beaver. One time someone asked Rennie if his wife liked beaver, and he said, I came home once and found her building a dam in the bathtub. Part of the reason for me, the rural, um, especially the coastal rural, is so important, is that it's one of the last sites, locations, places where its inhabitants um, are dwelling in the environment and ecosystem in a fully embodied way. In the city, we have um, layers and layers and layers of protection between us and the wild world. Um, you know, if it's snowing and, and windy, we can walk through a tunnel to get to the subway. We are, are less and less physically and materially engaged um, in, and I hesitate to use the word natural because God knows almost nothing is natural anymore, but in that system that we conventionally think of as, na as nature. Um, here in rural Newfoundland uh, and Labrador, we have this remarkable um, privilege, which we may be losing as more and more small coastal communities shut down and close up shop, um, to actually step back into that direct sensory embodied relationship to the larger ecosystem and bioregion within which we live. I believe, and I work towards this as both a scholar and an artist, that the further away we get from that direct, physical, embodied relationship, the more arrogant we become, the more remote our, our consequences become, the less we care about, feel complicit within, and thus feel obliged to steward <laughs> the natural world. If decisions about the North Atlantic are being made in boardrooms on Bay Street in Toronto, 
the distance between the decision and the consequences is so gigantic, people can't even imagine um, what might happen to the fish or fishers around which those decisions are made. So my location um, in the rural as a contemporary artist and a, and a collaborative scholar um, is wildly political. Drastically, urgently, oh my God, we're all going to die, um, political, to try and reveal and through that revelation, um, renew, reclaim, re-enchant that primary relationship in, in which we are not out, disconnected from what we engage with, but we are in fact humbly part of that system is the central this is the central flaw of humanism <laughs> i don't make me go there that's a phd conversation right um but to to make the human central above all other species has been one of our deepest um thinking mistakes in um in the west and um so a lot of the work that I do as an artist um, and have over the years has been to try and reveal, render visible, make discernible the power of the body, the power of human labor, the connection of humans to place, the embeddedness of humans within place, how we know, feel, and survive through our bodies, yada, 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 right? I've been like, you know throwing old cod traps in large spirals down on the landscape for <laughs> decades um, in order to help us see the links and lines, not just of association, not just of, you know, profit and, and resource exploitation, but the lines of dependency that hold us in, you know, what many, many thinkers would call this web um, of bio and social ecosystems of which we are a part, right? Inshore fishers remember their mark by name and often give names to ridges and hills they could see from the land as a way to triangulate their location on the water. Sometimes these were real names that might be found on maps, a headland or hill, and other times they were names assigned by fishers to help them remember and sometimes pass on their marks. Shrimp and crab fishers work in deep water, sometimes more than 100 miles from land, where there's nothing to see or name as a shorthand to share their locations without resorting to lats and longs, latitudes and longitudes. Instead, deep water fishers on Fogo and Change Islands named the ground and landmarks they cannot see. They have named numerous locations by the shape of their contour on the paper or digital charts. Locations like the pork chop, the rabbit, the duck, and the map, the boot, the eye, the peanut, the octopus, the gun case, or the seal are well known to fishers familiar with these charts and are a way to communicate their location to one another. One of the first layers of specificity, the deep, absolute particularity of place is ecological. You know, in some bays, because of b bottom and grounds and tides and everything else, there's flounder over there. 
and there's no flounder over on the other side of the island. Or there's halibut over there, and there's no shellfish. Or there's, you know, there's no crab on that side, and, you know, the crab boats all go out far. But in terms of the close-to-shore stuff, the um, relationship to harvesting in very specific places gives folks very specific place-based knowledge. I mean, you may grow up in, in the town of Fogo, but if you want to go fishing out of Selden, <laughs> you have some learning to do. And that's very well understood. Like, the the... The nature of um, the specificity of, of where things are is what I would call the first layer of place-based knowledge. Um, and that's true terrestrially, too. It's true on land. I mean, most people get in a boat and go over to the Indian Islands to pick their bake apples. You know, on one side of the island, there's some bake apples over there, but, you know, nobody on that side of the island knows where they are because they live on that side of the island, and they go to the Indian Islands to get their bake apples. So... You know, the challenge, even in a tiny little island like Fogo with, you know, 2,000 or 3,000 people on it, there's a, an amazing range. Um, a lot of that knowledge is shared um, because knowledge is social. I mean, it's social inside families, inside schools, inside tribes, communities. You know, just because you were fishing, you know, flounder and herring and capelin and cod over in Seldom doesn't mean you weren't talking to the guys over in Fogo, who were fishing, you know, something else and something else and something else. Um, the ways of doing things are different and the same. I mean, it's, it's, it's like any family. Um, we live in a very specific way because of the place we live in. The wind on Fogo Island means something different depending on which community you're in, you know, because of the coastline and, you know, I mean, it's, I'm sorry, it's, nobody lives somewhere in general. We all live somewhere in particular. Um, you know, one, one grandfather will teach one grandson how to salt cod one way and another grandfather or father or uncle will treat, teach somebody else and in Bonavista, if you look at the salting of cod, it was mostly women's work. So there were, you know, ways and means of going about this knowledge and passing it on and stuff like that. So I think even science, you know, big capital S, science, uh, begins as local, specific place-based knowledge, even if it's in a lab. That lab is in a climate, in a culture, in a history. So I think the fabulous thing about working in, in rural areas is that you don't really have to convince anyone of that. That that's patently obvious. You would have to be stupid not to notice, you know, that the beaches on one side of the place are different than the beaches on the other. I mean, how stunned would you have to be not to see how particular um, those environments are. And because you're in those environments working, um, you have a practice of paying attention. You have a, there is a kind of mindfulness in, in uh, people who live in, in rural communities. Farmers have it too. It's not just, I mean, I worked with farmers in Alberta um, for a season on a project and they have the same kind of, um, 
what I would call vernacular um, perceptual skill. This is, this is their expertise. They live, work in this environment, and so they know it. Hello? Jim Edwards in Change Islands built his first punt when he was 15 years old. He learned from watching his elders and his uncle taught him how to make and use the half model. He picked it up in about 10 minutes and in the last 35 years has built between 30 and 40 boats. Every punt he builds is different and he learns from each one how it rides in the water, how it rows and how cranky it is. The keel is blocked on the floor of the shed to keep it in place and then the stem and stern posts are braced to the shed ceiling once they are scarfed together. He also braces the three main frames to the ceiling before he battens it out. Jim ties his battens onto the timbers, tacking only the aft and four ends with nails. You don't want to split up your wood with nails if you don't have to, says Jim. Jim fishes from May to November and is busy on the water. He spends the winter months in the shed building furniture and decoys and punts. He can build a 14-foot punt in a week, and if you hire him to build you one, he will charge you by the foot. Pitchers are the timbers after four of the main frames. Floors strengthen the timbers between the forehook and afterhook. They are notched into the keel and sit beside each timber. There are no floors on the pitchers. Floors are not the boards you put your feet on. Those are floorboards or chutes. Battens are long, flexible, thin wooden strips used to secure the frames of a punt. They are usually attached after the three main frames are in and the stem and stern post or counter pitchers are in place. To batten out a boat is to apply the battens. There is a piece, um, a page out of the Fogo and Change Islands chapter. Um, I honestly can't even remember the title of the page. I think it's called On Wood Finding or Wood Finding On Seeing Boats in Trees. Now, I started fishing in 1988, so I know a thing or two about what fishers know. And in fact, that's what led me to where I am now was, you know, working for four years before the moratorium with a, a, an inshore cod trap crew and, and paying attention to what they knew because it just seemed like magic to me. And um, I've been following those questions ever since. So I always knew that Eli, my skipper, Eli Tucker, who's passed now, um, when he would go out to build punts in the winter and get lumber, he had a sawmill right there in Kitty Vitty on his premise, he would go out and he would, he would be looking for parts of the boat. All right, so when I started the encyclopedia, I noticed this, you know, again on the Northern Peninsula, although they were mostly building big wooden long liners, right? So they were using different kinds of timbers. And on Fogo and Change Islands, they are building punts, which are smallish boats, right? And um, they are um, not steaming wood. They don't steam any wood. They go out and they find the curve they want for the bow, for the stem, for the gunnel, for the breast hook, which is kind of like a wishbone shape. They see them in trees. To me, this is magnificent. I mean, art is about seeing things, you know. Um, 
And, but it's a hard thing to represent. You know, I can tell you the story. They go out, I can say which way they're looking for trees that are growing into a northerly wind on this coast because it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And under the ground is where you're going to find, you know, some of the strongest curved wood. And I can tell you what's happened to those curved timbers as a motivation for international designers building chairs the same way for the Fogo Island Inn. But what was so exciting on Fogo Island was that I found a way to make this visible by walking into someone's shed and seeing three pieces of wood on the ground, sawed with their bark rinds still on, and a timber the same shape that told this story. So we forget that the material world, the natural world, is alive. It's full of its own agency. Anybody who's ever worked with a piece of wood or tried to coil a sound cable will tell you that, that objects have their own kind of life and vitality. So rural Newfoundland is, is like that. There is always a person there you can ask. Um, and there are always things you can look at that will speak with you if you know how to have a conversation with them. Every boat builder in Fogo and Change Islands uses their own methods to build a punt. Like the punts themselves, each one is a little different. Those who work with half models carve the shape they want, then transfer those measurements to a larger scale. Many use one inch and one foot scale, but Jim Edwards in Change Islands uses three quarter inch scale. Then every sixteenth of an inch on the scale is one inch at full scale and three-eighths of an inch equals six inches. There are different ways to measure the model, and some slice it into different horizontal sections and mark their measurements on the individual layers. Others make cuts into the side of the model and make the measurements on shape cards that insert it into the slots. You can be in trouble if you lose those little cards. There are no formulas that work for all punts, but most are between 12 and 17 feet in length depending on what they're built for. Aidan Penton in Jobat's arm was never quite sure how far back to set the forehook and did it by eye. Then he found a book that the width of the forehook equals the distance it should sit aft the stem. This was right on to where he had placed it by eye. Almost everything is decided by your eye, says Aidan. The big thing is if you're going to translate stuff, which is what I think I do, I look at something that's a piece of wood in someone's shed and I turn it into a message about, you know, the wildly persistent and deep practice of paying attention of some rural stranger no one will ever meet, but who walks away from that page going, holy shit, somebody knows an awful lot and their respect shifts. You know, their ideas about expertise shift. You know, their presumptions and cliched assumptions shatter a tiny little bit. That's all you can do, you know, is poke away at that stuff. I think one of the things we forget, even when we're good translators, is that, you know, people have to want to talk to each other. <laughs> I love the way 
um, in a project like this, I get to actually talk to people about what they think. I mean, normally you throw something in an art gallery and you walk away. You don't throw it, I mean. Um, and, but you never really get any insight into how people encounter the work. Here, people were very forthcoming. And I think the one, one very common response um, by communities and participants, contributors, is um, pride of ownership. Um, this is their knowledge. And someone has been very respectful and, um, you know, uh, caring to make it visible and um, in a way that honors it. So there's that piece. I think the, the especially folks on Fogo and Change Islands are deeply, deeply pleased to have this um, because there's some stuff in there that they think is going to be lost. And then there's another kind of set of responses, which I've seen in communities of, of collaborators, but also in art galleries, in urban settings. I mean, the encyclopedia has been shown at the rooms. It's been shown at the public art gallery in Kamloops. So it has traveled to a bunch of different places. And I think that one of the primary responses is, is um, the impulse towards identity, which is, my nan knows that, or my grandfather used to, or, wow, that's not how my dad draws his fish. And I mean, I'm talking even in British Columbia, where it's like people are looking at things, and so they may not be responding to the, the salting of Atlantic codfish, but they're looking at that page going, wow, you know, my grandfather used to dry trout. We'd bring it out of the woods in the winter. I mean, every food, preservation, shelter, knitting. People go at those knitting and quilting pages like, wow, how did they, they're counting stitches, you know. They're, um, they're curious to see how someone else did something, right. Um, you know, I had a guy in front of the snowshoe page, Uncle George Elliott's still, bless him if he's still alive, you know, steaming birch and making snowshoes out in Mainbrook on the Northern Peninsula. Everybody else is using wire and stuff. Uncle George is steaming birch, and, um, which is a fascinating and time-consuming process, um, which I only know about because he showed me. Thank you, Uncle George. And there were two guys in the Kamloops Art Gallery who stood in front of that page and had a conversation for more than 20 minutes. You know? I mean, to me, that's it's worth doing to create those conversations. And, you know, those two guys were long gone uh, past Uncle George's snowshoes, and they were talking about their own snowshoes and their own, you know, tribal knowledge and their own local knowledge. I mean, everybody has local knowledge that emerges from place. It's about skill and patience. Like the one of the taglines titles, the subtitle on Uncle George's snowshoe page is, you know, this is a job for a patient man. And, you know, one of the things we forget embedded in knowledge practices of all kinds is not just skill and information and experience and a sense of intuitive connection, you know, where you can hear 
when the motor needs to be adjusted, you know, or you can feel that the line needs to be slacked off. You know, that's not even verbal, you know. Um, but there are also habits of being um, that are part of, of these kinds of knowledge practices, these kinds of um, studies, if you want. And people who have those habits of being um, recognize each other. You know, there are, you know, deep, detailed, um, specific attachments and um, allegiances and commitments. And, um, you know, if you took all the rural coastal people on the planet, um, they would have an awful lot in common with us and we with them. Maybe more than we have with the crowd in Toronto or on Wall Street. Um, so I think this is profoundly important to me, um, to use or to reveal uh, local knowledge as connective, you know, as deeply you know, human and humane, and a way through which we can talk to one another, right? In sheds and stores all over Fogo and Change Islands, you can find evidence of being handy. Being handy is a great compliment and describes anyone with physical and material skills who solves problems that need more than a single pair of hands. The whiz could be called a handy gadget. Twine needles were used to knit and repair fishing nets and were carved in many sizes to attend to different size mesh in nets for different species. Having a range of twine needles on hand was essential, as was making sure they were filled with twine and ready to use. Many youngsters grew up filling needles for their fathers or uncles or grandfathers, and yet, if one was alone and did not want a ball of twine rolling all over the floor getting tangled up, then you needed some kind of system or gadget that would feed you twine as you filled your needles. The whiz is just such a device. It hung from the ceiling in a shed or kitchen and had a swivel to let it turn as you pulled the twine off it. Harry Shepard in Stag Harbor is a carver and he often makes things he remembers from growing up. One of the small decorations he makes for Christmas trees is a little red whizwaz. As the fishery changes, there are not so many twine needles around, and you might need the story to know what you are hanging on your tree. Sometimes as practices change, the objects and technologies that remain behind seem mysterious and strange. Utility becomes decorative and serves as another way to pass on how things were done years ago. So, I mean, maybe art is the thing, is, is one of those things um, that can open a transformative space, um, a dialogue, a space for dialogue, right? A space for new connection and relation. I believe art can do that. I've seen it happen. Um, not everybody believes that's what art is for, and that's fine with me. Um, so, I mean, I think those are really the only two ways. You either bring someone to the place, to the rural place, and they are transformed, or you bring the rural place, <laughs> somehow, in some form or another, to them, and they are transformed. That's certainly one reason I pursue my practice. I'm the first one that gets transformed. Um, and um, then I work very, very hard to try and open up a space 
where it's possible that someone else might be too. Not necessarily in the same way I was, but that will um, invite them to pay a little more attention. That's really what my practice is about. It's a very close paying of attention. And to use that economic language, that paying of attention is, you know, speaks to the value, you know. We do not pay attention to what we do not value. So um, me paying attention to this kind of knowledge and this kind of place is an act of reverence, of value, of worth, you know, of identifying and um, investing worth. You know, this notion that the local is somehow um, regressive and static and dead I mean, clearly nobody's ever been in rural Newfoundland um, because, you know, it's, you can't live in, in a natural environment without being nimble and responsive. So you may be building a boat traditionally, a punt in a very traditional way, and you may be avoiding using certain materials, but you're still using digital calipers. If they're there, you're going to use them. And, you know, if you're putting caribou in a bottle... You're going to put some onion soup mix in because it's there. It's a new ingredient. It's part of the new environment, you know? So it's like there's, yeah, this notion that knowledge is fixed and complete is wrong, in my view. Um, knowledge is not a noun. It's a verb. Alice Griffin bottles caribou meat and has done so for many years. She uses the same process as for moose and learned that from her mother, who made 10 to 12 cases every year. There are 12 bottles in a case. You have to clean the meat really well to get rid of any short hairs that remain after butchering. And the meat from the ribs is most often used since larger cuts are frozen for roasts. After cutting the meat into bite-sized chunks, she prepares her sterilized mason jars by adding salt, fatback pork, and some onion soup mix. Into each jar, she then places enough caribou to almost reach the top, and then places the lid on each jar. She adds no liquid. The jars are placed on a boiler on the stove and covered with water. They are boiled or processed for four hours and then removed from the water and cooled. As they cool, a vacuum forms inside the jars, and the cooked meat can then be stored without refrigeration for months without any danger of spoiling. They would last for two years, said Alice, but with 13 youngsters in the family, we never had that problem. Ah, what gives me hope. Jeez. It's a, this is a very hard moment in Newfoundland and Labrador to speak about hope on the heels of a provincial budget that's taxing books and closing rural libraries. Um, and on, of a federal government that's cutting crab quota. <laughs> um, you know, what gives me hope, I think, is um, the tenacity in, and um, creativity of people who are living in rural Newfoundland and Labrador and elsewhere in the world. You know, as urban as the planet is becoming, um, to quote Zita Cobb of the Shorefast Foundation, you know, um, Everybody is related to the rural in one way or another. It's where we get our food. 
Um, it's where our ancestors come from. It's where our tribe arose from. And um, we lose connection with it at our peril. Um, it's hard to have hope in this moment um, because I think we're entering, you know, a hard time. But I was, I was rereading something the other day, an old, old thinker about cities, actually, Jane Jacobs. And she gives me hope <laughs> because she said years ago about cities as gigantic as New York City that, you know, we have to make decisions about the local, um, not about the visitors to the local because, you know, if we, if we serve the visitors, we will lose the local and then we will lose the visitors because it's to the local that the visitors come. So I have um, some optimism around that. There are examples in this province. Fogo Island is not the only one. Bonavista is another excellent example. The whole Bonavista Peninsula is doing interesting things. But I do worry um, that we're going to lose a generation, if not two. Um, and that worries me because, you know, I'm strong, but I'm tired. Thank you for listening to Rural Roots. This episode featured the work of Pam Hall, an artist and a scholar based in St. John's. Pam's latest project, called Towards the Encyclopedia of Local Knowledge, was partially supported through a postdoctoral fellowship shared between the Office of Public Engagement at Memorial University of Newfoundland and the Shorefast Foundation of Fog Island. The first two chapters of the encyclopedia are available in several libraries throughout the province. The chapters are also available online at encyclopediaoflocalknowledge.com. Katy Newhook and Colin Heffernan read the excerpts from the encyclopedia. I am Boyan Fierst. Rural Roots is produced in collaboration between the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons, a partnership bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. North Star is the song you can hear at the beginning and the end of this show. The song was composed by Laura Bates and performed by Trent Severn. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let us know if you liked the show. If you listen to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they're interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next time. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. I am Boyan Fierst, and you just listened to Rural Roots. Stay in touch.